I'm JJ Heller, and this is Instrumental, a show about the big and small moments that shape our lives. In every episode, my guest and I start near the end of their story and work our way back to the beginning. I hope our conversation reminds you that every second matters because none of us knows which moment will be the one that changes everything. Hello, it's JJ. And it's Dave. And we're here with another episode of Instrumental. (laughs) Uh, That was dumb. Yeah, I wanted you to say it with me. (laughs) This week, we get to introduce you to our friend, Kara Fox, who plays cello. Let's take a moment to talk about how cool cello is, JJ. It is so cool. It sounds awesome. Yeah, I mean... I think I would be happy if there's cello on every one of my songs. I like to say there's always room for cello. <laughs> That's a little little dad joke little there. Little cello joke, little, yes. Little music humor. And Kara has played cello on a whole bunch of our singles, especially recently. I really love that we were able to sit down and have a conversation with Kara because honestly, like most of the people that we know in the music business are male. Sorry. She is one of the rare females, and I'm so glad that she agreed to have a conversation with us on this podcast because she brings so much insight and so much wisdom. Kara has not only played on your music, though, JJ. Here are some people whose songs you might have heard her play on. Okay, let's alternate. Okay. Um, Torin Wells. Little Big Town. Lincoln Brewster. Plum. Big Daddy Weave. Ben Rector. Ellie Holcomb. Micah Tyler. Laura Story. Mandisa. Meredith Andrews. All Sons and Daughters. Friend Collective. Matt Redman. Jordan Feliz. Jeremy Camp. Lauren Daigle. Gunger. Crowder. She's legit, guys. I was even watching, like, the documentary that John Foreman made where he played 25 shows in 24 hours. You remember that? Yes. And one of the shows was him on top of a roof and... There was a cellist who was getting their cello handed to them up onto the roof, and it was Kara Fox. Yeah. She's, like, movie famous. She's like a movie star. (laughs) (laughs) As a quick little reminder, we tell people stories backwards. Because we're fun like that. So we're starting at the most recent chapter of Kara's story. JJ, let's jump in. Act three, I'm still here. After over six years of touring full-time with artists like Gunger, Sarah Bareilles, and All Sons and Daughters, in 2017, Kara transitioned to life off of the road. She was quickly met with an unexpected loss. We did actually have a miscarriage with our first pregnancy, maybe about eight weeks in. Hmm. I don't know because I hadn't even seen a doctor yet. And that happened right at the beginning of that year where I knew I was going to be off the road. You know, I just, I knew things were going to change. Um, but that set me into kind of this whole period of grief and processing that and trying to figure out what my work was going to look like. Um, did you share about that with any close friends or anything? Or did you keep it between just you and Jared? I did share with our close friends and our, our family. It was Early enough, and we were so shocked about the pregnancy during all the Christmas stuff that year that we didn't tell anybody we were pregnant. We were just trying to digest it ourselves. And so 
the miscarriage happened and we ended up telling friends and family about the pregnancy and the miscarriage because mm-hmm. we hadn't told anybody. That that was really tough because it's like news that you want to share in excitement and joy that you're pregnant, but really you're sharing like one of the greatest heartbreaks that I think you can go through. And even my own mom, she went through a really, really hard miscarriage in her 20s before I was born. And, you know, she was so many years removed from that, but it gave us a different connection than we had ever had before because she could share my pain. Mm -hmm. She knew. Did your mom have a big emotional reaction when you told her? Yeah. She's not really a big crier. Nobody in my family is, but um, she she did cry. I mean, we cried together over the phone a lot. My my parents live in Kansas City where I grew up, so it was all over the phone. And, yeah, it, I think she was emotional because she knew my pain, and it. I think it took her right back to her own pain in some ways. So it was a, a deep experience for both of us, yeah. Yeah. Wow. But I am... Man, so grateful for our close friends that we were able to share with. And one of my good girlfriends in particular had just gone through that same thing almost a year to the day before I did. And she in particular just really carried me through that time. And, you know, you when you start sharing it with people, you find out how common it really is. Mm-hmm. And you meet women all over the place that have gone through it. So it's not something I shy away from sharing when the, you know, when the moment is right, because you realize you're in good company and a lot of people share in that heartbreak. And that's kind of how I got through it. It was just that feeling I'm not alone. And it doesn't mean anything about my health or my body. It's something that happens. And I think that helped me grieve because I was so carried. What did your friend say or do that was helpful to you in that time? Oh, man, the just the freedom to feel whatever I felt, mm. anger or just deep, deep sadness. You know, day to day, it's like things just change and shift. And I would call her or text her and she would just say, it is completely okay to feel that way. Or I remember feeling exactly that. So just like affirming that my experience is okay and I shouldn't need to be anywhere else than where I am with it right now. And she brought a box of goodies and left it on my front door, Hmm. just tea and cookies and a book and a mug and just some sweet little things. I'll never forget that kindness. Yeah, it's like the equivalent of uh, someone dropping off a casserole, except it's like a whole bunch of gifts that keep on giving. Yes, better than a casserole, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) Aside from even miscarriages, I've totally gotten into leaving baskets of gifts on people's step because I think it's just the, the best thing. And you don't knock, you don't have to say, you know, you don't have to see them face to face, but just that's the beauty that comes out of such tremendous suffering in all of our lives is getting to then carry that with somebody else. Somebody carried it with me and I get to carry it with others. But then we got pregnant immediately <laughs> again. Wow. Looking back, it's it's just kind of amazing how all of that 
the grief of that miscarriage, it's so clearly something that shaped me and prepared me in a different way for pregnancy and motherhood than I otherwise would have known. Because I think there's a maybe a greater depth of gratitude when you do have a successful pregnancy after mm. that. And so I, as sick as I was, I loved being pregnant and tried to just work through all of the yucky feelings as much as I could. And, you know, the next couple producers that hit me up for a session, I just would say, well, I've got the capabilities to record at home if that's ever easier for you. So I was learning that, you know, kind of as I was pregnant and trying to figure out what kind of workload I could take on and what what is this going to look like, all the while knowing I'm about to have maternity leave anyway. Self-employed maternity leave. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we were like saving up money so that we could hopefully live for a couple months yeah. without my income. So my son was born the very end of 2017, um, December 28th, and I think I took a pretty solid six weeks off. I remember the first time I came down here to the studio and tracked on a song in the midst of those crazy newborn days. It was the first thing that gave me this breath of like, oh, I'm still here. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm still me. This is it. This is what I love to do. That confirmed to me that I wanted to work. Hmm. You know, I always had wondered, when I have a baby, am I just going to want to quit and just be a stay-at-home mom. And it was quickly evident to me, like, I'm not cut out for that. I want to work. I want to make music. It was just kind of that first little glimpse of, okay, maybe I can make this thing work, like track during baby's nap. Yeah. And then mom the rest of the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I have days and times where I do really miss life on the road. I always loved touring and got to tour with just some amazing people. I think last year was probably one of my best years yet, and I did very little touring. It was all in town and working at home. How do you measure best years yet? Well, I may I mean money-wise <laughs> when I say that. Yeah, yeah. But also just the fact that I am able to like work and be home with my son so much and it's been really hard to figure out that balance and to to juggle all of those things you guys know but I'm working and I love my work and it keeps coming in so I couldn't be more grateful for that And she really got it right when she said it's all about finding that balance, right? Totally. I mean, anyone, especially if you're a woman who has a career and then has a child, has to rearrange their entire life. And I love the way that Kara approached the whole thing. Just very open-handed. She allowed herself the space to figure it out without the pressure of choosing one or the other. And I love that she remained curious about how she felt and just the way that she told us about that first time playing the cello again and going like, oh, there I am. Like, that's actually paying attention to the way that you're feeling. And I think that's so critical to moving through life and feeling alive. Well, we're going to jump back in time, JJ, to act two of Kara's story. This is back in 2010 when Kara had her big break 
into life on the road as a full-time touring musician. And she got to do the thing that every musician dreams of doing. What was it? Quitting her job at Starbucks. (laughs) (laughs) Act two, the stuff dreams are made of. When she was 24 years old, not only did Kara get her big career break, but she also was about to meet the love of her life. I had just started playing with Gunger, and we played a show in Franklin for like a conference that was going on. And Jared came to meet one of the guys in Gunger at the time um, because he was going to mix a record for him. So he came to, you know, get files and talk through things. And we met after the show, and Jared ended up going out to dinner with all of us afterwards. What's funny is... I like I know Jared made an impression on me. Obviously, I remember meeting him and now he's my husband, but at the time <laughs> like at the time I didn't really think that much of it. I thought he seems really cool and so, you know, maybe we'll be able to make a connection and work together. And that's kind of all I thought of it at that point. Um, you know, I was like on the road with a cool band and doing my thing and having a blast. I also had just about six months before gotten out of a really, really horrible relationship Hmm. that was like a huge bump in the road for me and had spent months in counseling and like finding myself again. And so the point where I was when I met Jared, I was like, you know, finally feeling like myself and loving being single kind of for the first time ever. So I wasn't looking for anything. And I, you know, it turns out Jared liked me from before we even spoke. Like he, (laughs) I don't want to embarrass him, but he sent his roommate a text message about the cellist at the show. Really? So he, you know, he was drawn to me, but it took me a little while to come around. (laughs) So when you guys hung out, it wasn't like he had any pickup lines or anything like that. Oh gosh, no. And anybody that knows Jared knows that he's just the most like kind and quiet and unassuming person and I I knew that from the start like that night he went out to dinner with all of us he sat across the table from me and it was like every time I looked at him he just he kind of had his head down and he just like peek up at me he he's shy and it takes a while for him to even like speak in a crowd of people but that just spoke to me of like a quiet confidence so really that's what I ended up so drawn to in him was just that sense of like he knows who he is and he's not trying to put on a show and impress anybody and he was just quietly persistently there in my life for a while. Did you leave that dinner that night and think about him at all? I think I was just kind of moving on. I think I had the sense that he like not maybe liked me or was attracted to me or whatever. I had that feeling, but I just was kind of so in my own world. I didn't think much about it, but I did give him my business card that night. <laughs> like back in the days where I still had business yeah. cards. Because I I did. I just thought he's a you know, producer engineer, maybe we can work together and that would be great. And then he either emailed or sent me a Facebook message a week or two later and said, you know, when you're home off the road, can we get a coffee and talk about music and our careers? And he totally played it off like a music connection, you know. And then Um, later fall in love. 
Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he, you know, secretly was asking for that. But um, so we just met at Starbucks one day in the afternoon and sat and talked for over an hour. And that definitely was where I initially like saw him and was a little bit attracted, but still just completely terrified of a relationship and I wouldn't let myself go there. And we really did just talk about music. And I remember coming away from that coffee, like so inspired. And I went home and I told my roommate, like, he's really, really cool. He's just cool. Hmm. And I wasn't ready to kind of pursue anything, but he just every few days would text and just say, hey, I'm thinking about you. And within a month and a half, I want to say, we were like going on our first real dates and it felt like, okay, something is happening. I was still just so terrified and I tried to break up with him pretty quickly. And really, he totally talked me off the ledge and dispelled a lot of my fear. You know, I had, I guess you could say baggage from my most recent relationship where it was, you know, manipulative and controlling. And I felt like I had to answer to somebody. And now I was like touring and making new friends and like doing music and doing what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to have to be, you know, tied down and answer to somebody. But he totally just dispelled that myth basically. And I just remember him telling me like, you don't have to call me every day. You don't have to answer to me. Like, live your life. I just want to be here and I want to, you know, I want to keep getting to know you and be with you and and see where it goes. Like, it, it just was no pressure. How did it How did it feel to have him say something like that after you were kind of so afraid that he might behave the same way that your previous boyfriend did? I mean, it was huge. I mean, I remember around that same time talking to my roommate, who was really kind of my best friend at the time, and, like, laughing because, you know, they say that you marry men like your father, which, sure, I don't know, but Jared is so much like my dad. And that just played into how I knew I was safe and cared for, and he kind of checked all the boxes for me. What are some of those dad-like characteristics that he has? <laughs> the biggest thing it is just his quiet confidence, which I picked up from day one with him. Like, I think I had always been attracted to the, like, onstage musician guys that they definitely look like they have it all together on the outside, and you realize they're, they're troubled souls on the inside. <laughs> and just meeting Jared, and he was so quiet and gentle. Um, it just felt so entirely different from what I had known in a relationship before. And the way he encouraged me to be more and more fully myself and pursue my career and go on the road and make these connections and do what you're supposed to do rather than a guy that's kind of holding me back because of his own insecurities. Hmm. He was pushing me and, and still does every day, hmm. like push me to be a better musician and, and it encourages me that I already am wow. <laughs> what I need to be.
JJ, I think there's a really valuable lesson here. <laughs> yeah? What's that? If you're a cello player in Nashville, right after you quit your job at Starbucks, start looking for a husband. He's right around the corner. <laughs> okay. That's your takeaway? <laughs> that's, that's what I took away from Kara's oh, okay. story. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I really love this next story that she's about to tell because it's the type of moment that as a musician, you just dream about, but you wonder if it's actually ever going to happen. And it happened to her. Yep. It begins with a text message to Kara from another cello playing friend of hers named Claire Indy. I remember I was on a plane. I was like about to take off going somewhere. I don't know. And I think she just texted and said, hey, I think I'm going to do a tour with Sarah Bareilles and they're looking for a second cellist. Are you interested? And so, of course, I was like internally freaking out and also trying to hold it together. <laughs> I might in public. be able to. <laughs> I'm very busy. I know. I'm like, do I play it cool? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so, of course, I was really excited at that and had to send in like a little audition video to the band leader. But it just was the most fantastic touring experience I've ever had. Like saying yes to a tour, it has to hit two of three marks. It has to be awesome music, an awesome hang, or awesome money. <laughs> like, it has to be two of those three things. And the Sarah tours were all three of those things. Um, hmm. Just really some of the most amazing people I've met on the road and some of my favorite music. I got to play and sing. We did The Tonight Show with Jay Leno Okay. The, in its final week. Wow. What song were you guys playing? Brave. Dude. That was the single at the time. Wow. That that was a huge single. Yeah. Yeah. It was so fun. I mean, that you know, even on the record, it has two cello parts. And they're so fun to play. Like they're just well written parts and you know, we both got to sing and what what was it like to be on the yeah, tonight show? I want to hear about that. <laughs> um, was that your first time on late night like TV? I can't remember the order of everything. I know the first TV thing we did was The Voice. And we also played on Ellen and The View, I think. <laughs> what was your favorite TV performance? Ellen. You know, I just remember she came around and, like, shook everybody's hand in the band and was so kind and welcoming. And she came back to to me and Claire and shook our hand and she told she started talking to us about how she wanted to get her wife a cello for her birthday and so she's asking us like where do I where do I look where do I go to to get a good cello Amazon maybe I mean <laughs> what do you say to Ellen who has all the money in the world right. I'm like just go get a cello do you want I a mean, Stradivarius yeah. or... <laughs> right can you buy me a cello because I'm sure it'd be nicer than the one I have you can have mine and I'll take the yeah, one yeah right yeah. that's what I should have offered <laughs> Um, but yeah, she was just so kind and it was a really fun day. I, I remember that one. You know, they all they all were really fun. I played on the Emmys also what? with her. Which that I mean, that was awesome because it's just, you know, this room filled with celebrities, but it also is like you just you realize how not glamorous so much of that stuff is because you're just sitting in a little green room with no windows all day waiting till it's your turn. You I know? think about that so much. I mean, every beautiful theater or beautiful room has some back room 
that is like cinder block. You yeah. know, it's yeah. like they put the sheen on like one side. I mean, it's kind of like Disneyland, right? It's like on the other yeah. side of that wall is plywood and yeah. a mop, you know? Yep. So you're at the Emmys. <laughs> Were there any celebrities that walked by? Like, did you have some memorable interactions or just see someone where it was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm in the room with so-and-so. Do yeah. you freak out about any of that? A little bit. Like, I'm not easily starstruck, I think, because I'm like, okay, they're just a person. But, um, I mean, that that day in particular, I for sure, I saw Andy Samberg multiple times in the hallway Seth Myers was hosting and he came back stage after our sound check and like just told all of us, you know, face to face, like, you guys, that was fantastic. It was really, really beautiful. And he was so sincere. Mm-hmm. And whatever year it was, maybe 2014, Breaking Bad was huge and they were up for an award. And so when we played, like for the actual event, the whole Breaking Bad cast was right in front of us in the front rows. So that was a big deal to me because <laughs> I was really into Breaking Bad. So yeah, there were a few a few moments. I was like, this is pretty cool. <laughs> That's awesome. And all of that came from Claire. Yeah, wow. basically. <laughs> I, I remember maybe a couple months after I moved to town, I went to a Shane and Shane concert at Belmont and I think Bebo Norman was opening or something and Claire was playing for everybody. And I just remember sitting like just enthralled the whole time and thinking that's what I want to do. And she plays so beautifully and tastefully. It, it complements the music. And, and she, I knew she was just playing along and improvising. I had learned how to do that like witnessing what she does in a band context, I was kind of learning how to do that. And I thought, that's the thing. Like, look how beautifully cello fits in this setting and complements the voices and the instruments. And I quickly just aspired to be Claire Indy. (laughs) And now she's a dear friend of mine and we've toured together, which is incredible. So, like, I mean, did you see her play a whole bunch after that? Like, did you view her as competition? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there was definitely some jealousy. No doubt. I mean, not because I I know her even, but just like, man, she's doing the thing that I want to do. And she's like young and beautiful and I'm sure everybody loves her. <laughs> so yeah, I, I saw her around town at a few shows and, you know, it it just really helped push me in those early days to keep refining my craft and like learning from what she was doing. And my whole time in Nashville, she's just been kind of that step ahead of me, even to where she had a baby first. And, you know, a couple of years ago when I was pregnant and like trying to think through how am I going to do this? I remember talking to her a couple of times and, you know, she had to kind of weigh the same, the same issues of, do I want to really just focus on being home and being a mom or do I want to work or is there some in between? And, you know, for her, I think she ended up opting more to, to stay home with her daughter and she is working, but, um, she really has scaled back and has felt like it, it's worth it for her. And she just loves being a mom and being with her girls. And I think I have found a slightly different balance, but I'm just so grateful for her as a friend and a colleague 
in a way, having having paved the way, not just for me, but for other female string players that I know that do the same thing as me that are thinking about starting a family. And it's like, you know, just to have the example of somebody that is doing it, has done it, is such a gift. You know, I think that's why I have been able to have a career is because there are people like Claire that have trusted me and referred me. And so I'm so happy to do that for anybody else. I think we all just kind of trade that favor back and forth, you know. I think it's so wise how Kara chose not to compete with Claire, but she remained open to the possibility of a friendship. Yeah. Let's take it back to 2009. 2009. A good year. Do you want to tell me what happened in 2009? Somebody really famous had a birthday in 2009. Every living famous person had a birthday in 2009. Well, this one wasn't living. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so a dead famous person (laughs) had a birthday? Uh Uh-huh. Abraham Lincoln turned 200. <laughs> okay. Oh, and we didn't have a party. Oh, man. We missed out. We missed out on the uh, the old 2009 Lincoln's 200 birthday party. That's right. So Lincoln turned 200 and Kara turned 23. Yes. Significant year uh-huh. in 2009. Mm-hmm. Act one, she saved my life. As Kara struggled to find her footing as a musician in Nashville... She was also struggling with a toxic relationship. This act includes social isolation, a chance encounter in a church lobby, and a picture of safety. I had basically one kind of serious relationship at the very end of college when I moved to Nashville, and then a couple years single, or a year, year and a half single, And then had about an eight-month relationship that might as well have been three years of my life. It felt like it it stole so much from me. Wow. I look back on it now, and it's like I just see what it taught me, (laughs) and I see how I was able to grow and heal from that. Um, But it was in many ways like one of the hardest things I've ever gone through because I'd never really like lost myself to someone what do you mean? Well, it was it was an emotionally abusive and manipulative relationship to the point where I was made to feel like I was crazy and that everything I was doing was wrong and I wasn't good enough to meet this person's needs. Mm. And in reality, he had some some mental and emotional issues that he needed to work through, but I was bearing the brunt of that. So I was being controlled and and isolated and so much of my kind of, you know, early 20s, like still innocence was taken from me in that experience. And it also was very much the kind of relationship where like we put on a good face everywhere we went Hmm. and nobody would ever have known what was going on behind the scenes. And I was just in complete turmoil and didn't know what to do. And I had never been in anything like that and thankfully I had an incredible roommate and friend at the time that I think 
she saw enough of what was going on that she just kind of kept asking me, are you okay? Like, are you, are you sure this is a good thing? Do you want to be in this? Um, and for a long time, I couldn't hear that. But I think she was that lifeline for me that at the end, like, I had enough of myself left and enough of, of an awareness left to get out of it. What do you think kept you in it? I think this is not just me. I've seen a lot of young, I think specifically young Christian girls that can fall into a relationship like this because I grew up with this idea that like women are servants and in a relationship you're supposed to submit to the man. And, you know, at 22, 23, I didn't have a deeper understanding of what that might actually mean. It just, (laughs) it felt like I, like I knew that he had some issues, but I felt like I could love him out of that. And I felt like I could fix him. Yeah. Sort of like this rescuer mentality kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to rescue him, but like by loving him well. Yeah. And that's, that's all I was trying to do. And, you know, we both were just really young and I I don't think either of us realized the depth of what was happening and just kind of this cycle of emotional abuse. And, you know, I wasn't even able to call it emotional abuse until I was pretty far removed from it and in counseling and had, was able to like separate myself from the emotion and look back on what had happened. I said it was eight months, but like I was just in so, so deep and was thinking about marrying him. And I just can't imagine like the different place that my life would be in right now. I don't think I would have a music career being stuck in a a controlling relationship where I'm continually torn down and my ambitions were kind of quashed. Like I, I wasn't encouraged to pursue a music career. So like if an opportunity presented itself for you during those months, would he just kind of say like, no, I want to go out on a date or like, would he keep you from attempting to develop your career or like, how did that play out? I think it's more just kind of those really small, subtle ways that somebody just tears you down where he might initially be encouraging and say, oh, that's, that's awesome. That's really good for you. But then you realize like he feels threatened by it. Like he feels threatened by my success. And so I think it's just those kind of little consistent ways that someone can just kind of make you feel like you didn't do a good job or like maybe you shouldn't just second guessing myself, you know, was he a musician too? Yeah. So your forward movement was threatening to him. Yeah. And and he was younger than me. So I was already just further in a career that he wanted to have too. Hmm. Um, I had these feelings like for weeks and weeks, probably months of like when I was alone and honest with myself, I knew that this wasn't right. I knew that I wasn't happy. But these type of men, I hate to, you know, categorize anybody but well a a manipulator yes and they know how to charm and they know how to say what you want and how to keep you right there within their grasp and so I was stuck in that for a while and at the time I was going to Strong Tower Bible Church in Franklin it's a very 
multicultural, multi-generational church. It was a really beautiful place. And the women's minister there at the time was Christy McClellan. She is really one of the most like strong and powerful women I've ever known and so self-possessed in the best way. Um, and, and I hadn't talked to her a whole lot one-on-one, but, you know, had met her a couple times at the church. At the time she was, I don't know, 35-ish, somewhere, somewhere around there. Which probably seemed really old. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I See, I don't really know because at the time she just felt like I knew she was kind of that next generation from me maybe and I knew that she was wise like just so wise and you know she just has this sense of kind of security and strength and she has walked through stuff and um, she just has a strong presence and yet a calming presence like I clearly I felt very safe with her because we just actually ran into each other out in the kind of foyer area and I was, at that point, I felt like I was at wit's end. And so, I mean, drowning in shame that I felt like I couldn't talk to anybody about. And part of that is having grown up in what I now call purity culture and dealing with the physical relationship I was having with this guy and feeling like I couldn't talk about it because it was so shameful. And so I was just drowning in that and carrying the weight of that. And... I ran into Christy and she, you know, she just said, Kara, how are you? And I, I think at first I was like, I'm fine. I'm okay. And then she, she like stopped and looked at me and said, Kara, how are you? And I, you know, it was, it was like pointed. I knew that she could see right then. And that, so I broke down, completely broke down. And I think church was about to start, like the main service was about to start. And she just took me off to a bench in a hallway and we skipped church (laughs) and um, just sat there and I just poured it all out to her. And I said, you know, I told her everything that had been going on. And I'm sure the whole the whole time I'm also trying to justify it. And I'm saying, but he's such a good guy and this and this and this. But I told her the truth and I told her, you know, I have dreams of doing music and doing ministry and he doesn't want me to do some of these things. And and I just remember her like telling me point blank, this is an abusive relationship. You have to get out of it. And I have been there. I've been through this same thing. And here's how you're going to do it like five steps. I don't remember if it was four or five steps, but she gave me practical steps. Like number one, go home and tell your roommate who, who was also, you know, kind of my best friend at the time, mm-hmm. go home and tell her, tell her exactly what's been happening. Cause you need a physical presence. That's going to actually force you to walk through this. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to cancel lunch plans with him and his family that afternoon. Wow. wow. And then I remember, she said, you have to do this over the phone. Call him and break it off and tell him this is not okay. I'm ending this. You can't argue this. I'm walking away. Like 
just cut and dry, point blank. Did she say, like, tell him the news and hang up in a way to not let him sort of convince you back into it? Probably. But I know that was the gist of it. <laughs> it's like, you need to do this over the phone and and don't give him an out. Don't give him an option. Don't allow him to explain. Yeah. Like, this is the step, the practical step right now. There might be more discussions in the future where you can talk more about it, but right now you have to cut it off. Yeah. And I did it. It didn't go that easily because he showed up at my door shortly after. And it turned into a days-long struggle. So, like, he showed up at your door and you decided to continue communicating with him to try to, like... Yeah, it felt like I didn't... (sighs) I didn't have an option. Like he wasn't going to go away to the point where like my roommate was house sitting at another house, not far from our apartment. I went and stayed with her that night, turned my phone off. Wow. And he, I don't even know how, and I don't have like a clear memory, but he actually like knew some way to make an emergency call to my phone where it would still go off. Wow. Um, and then he drove around the whole area until he found my car. Oh, my goodness. I wasn't at home. And he left a note on my car. And then he showed up at my work the next day. Wow. It, it just was kind of one thing after the next where, like, after a few days, I was considering a restraining order. Yeah. Yeah. It was a mess. And that, you know, it was a huge upheaval in my life. Like, there was no easier way out of that relationship. It, I think that is just the way that that had to play out. And I I think, too, that it was a rock bottom for him. Mm-hmm. And I don't talk to him. I haven't seen him in years. But I do know he got help Good. after that. Um, and I did, too. That was my first time seeing a counselor. And I've, I went to counseling for about six months after that and did some really, really deep work in being able to acknowledge that it was abuse and that it wasn't my fault. Yeah. <laughs> and just work kind of accessing what my feelings, what what I was experiencing and naming it, like the shame yeah. and the guilt, those were huge. That shame was huge. So being able to name that and and process it and grieve and just feel all of it. Yeah. Um, that was the first time in my life that I was like face to face with my inner reality. I really have lived like a very happy and privileged life in so many ways. And that's what it took for me to just come face to face with my own kind of depravity, but also like this wasn't my fault. This was me wanting to love somebody and I got sucked in. Yeah. But really having to unpack shame based on a fundamentalist upbringing and ways that I felt like I had sinned that really like... It wasn't my fault. Yeah. I was manipulated and and coerced into things that, you know, I'm 10 years removed from that, 11 years removed from that, but it's still such a lesson for me in knowing myself and dealing with shame and in refusing shame sometimes. What, what does that mean, refusing shame sometimes? Oh, I just think that shame that I carried for so much of my life that really came to light through that relationship was, I think it's based off of a very dysfunctional understanding of God as 
um, somebody who, who is out to punish us, where we have to meet some kind of standard to be loved and accepted. And I just think that couldn't be more wrong. But for so much of my life, you know, spoken or unspoken, that was my perception of God. And so every mistake I felt like I made, um, I just carried like an 80 pound weight on my shoulders and was always trying to kind of make up for that, like by being better in whatever other way I I could by going to Christian college and doing a devotion at 5.30 a.m. every morning, thinking I could get closer to God and make up for my sinfulness. And so I think I think that's like the root of the shame I was feeling was that I felt like I had disappointed God. Mm. And so it's been a years long process since then of learning God is not that. God is not punitive and and wrathful and um, disappointed. He's benevolent and purely love. And that has really just transformed my perspective and freed me from so much of that shame that I carried all the way through my 20s, you know. So by refusing shame, I'm just saying, like, I acknowledge that God is a more benevolent being than I once believed, and I don't have to carry that shame. That's not for me. That's not mine. We only learn from the heartbreak and the grief. Like, that's the only way we grow is by coming up against conflict and against difficult things. Um, so I don't want to take those things away from myself and from my story. And, you know, I would love to have avoided that relationship. I wish I could tell myself, just don't do that. But more so, I wish I could just tell her that she's so loved and she's okay mm. and live in that love and in that understanding just as a baseline and then pursue your dreams like fearlessly. You were talking about how the two of you tried to keep your dysfunction hidden, like you put on a happy face. Does that mean that you isolated yourself a little bit from the friendships that you had at that point? Oh, yeah. Because your friends and your family are mirrors to you, I think. And when you're really in relationship and you're like being honest with people, they're going to know what's going on. And so there had to be a certain level of isolation for that kind of relationship to keep going. And I don't know that he, you know, ever said, I don't want you to be friends with so-and-so. But again, it's just those like subtle ways of maybe tearing down one of my friends that then makes me second guess that they're really my good friend. Hmm. You know, little by little, he's removing my mirrors and my, my resources to remember who I am it really is one of those tactics in manipulative relationships is that isolation because if you keep those lifelines there's going to be somebody to pull you out of that relationship and I don't know that I lost friends necessarily but um, let a lot of my relationships just fall by the wayside because I didn't want to tell people the truth of what was going on. So if somebody's listening and they think that they might be in an abusive relationship what would your advice be? 
tell somebody, find a safe person. And, you know, there, I think there are different levels of, of isolation that you get to in a relationship like that. And it might be hard to think of who that safe person is, but there is somebody, there is somebody in your life that is a safe person. And you just need to tell the truth to somebody. You need to realize this is not a problem with you. You're not doing something wrong. You're being abused and you need to tell somebody. And whether that person like can actually give you the practical steps like Christy did for me to get out or not, they can lead you, I'm sure, to a place and to a person with those resources. And you don't have to even have a beautiful way of like explaining what's going on. Like just tell somebody and they're going to realize it's not okay. Yeah. Circling back to Jared, what do you see in Jared that helps you know that you're safe with him? I think just that there is no pressure ever to be anybody other than who I am or to accomplish anything other than what I'm setting out to accomplish. Like he, he pushes me to be better, but it's not this like expectation that I need to change anything or behave differently. I just know that I can be exactly who I am. And there's just no judgment. I don't feel like he has ever judged me for even like the huge ways that I have messed up in our marriage, you know, like the huge ways that I've hurt him over the years. Like it's just been acceptance, even if he's heartbroken. He's never walked away. He's never even walked away in an argument. So that just speaks safety to me, you know. Do you think Christy knows how significant that conversation was that she had with you? Um, yes and no. I, I feel like at the time she probably did. And she also would text me like every day for wow. months, I feel like. It was that same kind of, um, you know, how are you doing? And then that's okay. Hmm. Like wherever you are today, totally okay. You don't need to be anywhere else. You know, it was an ongoing relationship with her for a few months of her just like checking in and saying, good, do that thing today. You just, you know, go for a walk, do that thing. Like just move your feet, move your body. Um, and it's okay. And I think, you know, at the time she probably knew that like that was significant. Like she, she saved me from that relationship. I don't know, 10 or 11 years later that she remembers it, but she kind of saved my life, <laughs> you know? Yeah. If you hadn't had that conversation, I mean, what would have happened if, if she hadn't asked you how you were doing that morning? Oh, man. I mean, it's impossible to know. I, you know, I fear that I would have stayed in that relationship for a long time. I, I don't know. We, like, we were talking about getting married. So it, it is safe to say, though, that, like, if she hadn't asked you how you were doing, you certainly wouldn't be married to Jared. Yeah. You wouldn't have your little boy. Yeah. You wouldn't be talking to us right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I'd be a completely different person. And I, I hope I would have, like, 
had the strength or had the conversation with somebody at some point that would have gotten me out of it. But to think about the timing of it, that it was only six months from that time to when I got the call from Gunger and I started traveling with Gunger and less than a month later met Jared on the road with Gunger. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I guess that really, like, really changed the trajectory for me. Yeah, she saved me. (laughs) I am so glad that Kara shared that story. You know, uh, before we go into these conversations, we ask people to send us a list of important elements of their life. Yeah, like big life moments. That story wasn't even on the list. No. It was just something that came up over the course of talking to Kara. And Yeah, and she actually said like, yeah, it's a long story. You don't want to hear about it. And we both said, yes, we do. <laughs> and, and it was really brave of her to share that story. I know. It was very vulnerable and so powerful because I know that somebody listening right now needs to hear exactly what Kara had to say. Well, let's take a moment to walk down memory lane. This is Shall we? <laughs> <laughs> this is the final segment of our show. It is called Let's Rewind the Tape. Kara continues to play cello on other artists' music, mostly from home. Music she wouldn't be playing on and recording if it weren't for years on the road, learning from colleagues like Claire Indy. And even her husband, Jared, an amazing recording engineer. But she never would have met Jared if it weren't for the curiosity of a friend who asked her how she was really doing one Sunday morning before a church service. This episode of Instrumental was produced by me, JJ Heller. And me, Dave Heller, with additional editing by Kyle Henson. Our theme music is my song, Big Love, Small Moments. That I helped write. (laughs) To find out more about me, listen to more of my songs, or watch my music videos, please visit jjheller.com. That's two letter J's, H-E-L-L-E-R.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Instrumental. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.